Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. LA Opera is proud to share this special conversation recorded on November 9, 2015, between renowned opera artist Maria Ewing and Michael Hackett of UCLA. Throughout her remarkable career, Miss Ewing astonished audiences with her searing performances in both soprano and mezzo-soprano roles. As one of the early leading artists at LA Opera, she spoke with Dr. Hackett as part of LA Opera's oral history project to discuss her career, roles, and a life in opera. We celebrate Maria Ewing's life, honor her legacy, and remember her artistry and performances across the world. So Maria Ewing, thank you very much. So where were you born and where did you grow up? I was born in Detroit, Michigan, and that's where I grew up. And what is your first memory of an opera? When the uh, Metropolitan Opera Touring Company, I think it was called at that time, uh, came to Detroit and performed La Boheme. And we we went to see that, yes. And how old were you? Oh, gosh. Uh, No, 14, 15, something like that. And do you have any specific <laughs> memories that you can share? <laughs> Anything? That... <laughs> yes, that we overdressed. <laughs> that I remember very well. Uh, actually, before I'd seen uh, this opera, uh, my mother brought back some recordings from Holland. And those had a profound impact. And I was much younger. I was a small child. Should I go into that? Or? Yes, please. That would be very interesting. And one was of Caruso singing, and I knew nothing about any of this. You know, it was all, I was really a small child, maybe eight years old, maybe younger. And that had a profound effect upon me. And also, there was an orchestral recording of uh, uh, Ernst Ensermé in the Swiss Roman playing. Uh, Oh, gosh, the bolero on one side and l'après-midi d'enfant by Debussy uh, on the other. And I would listen to this record. We didn't have many records at all of, of the classical nature. Although my mother was European, my father was classically trained and all of it, but we, we simply didn't have many recordings to hand. Well, I don't think a lot of people did at that time, you know. And I'd listen to this recording just alone in a room, putting on the little record player. And... I was immediately drawn to, to, to it. And it's just a connection you can't explain. Anyway, that's how it's all sort of so what, do you, So you say you can't explain, but was it the sound of the music that seemed different to you? or what? Everything about it. Yes. The, 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 the melody of it, the, uh, uh, the atmosphere, it was all in, encompassing. I, uh, do, when do you remember uh, a voice coming out of you? <laughs> ah, well... I, you know, my sister Frances was was uh, a singer at school. She didn't go on to become a professional singer, but she had a lovely soprano voice. And I I wanted to be a pianist at one time. That was my sort of passion was to play the piano. Um, so I'd accompany Frances, and then we'd sort of sing through. Uh, you know, very badly and, and um, incomprehensible Italian, the uh, duet from Butterfly, you know, just sort of just go at it. And my mother 
turned, she was listening, and she said, you, you have a voice, she went. And I felt a little, rather, uh, I was, well, as if to say, you don't think I can play the piano. <laughs> but I, I, I sang really just for myself, as it were, and I think that's what singing really is about anyway. Yes. Um, so I would sing just, you know, songs perhaps a popular song or so whatever it may be but it was the text the meaning behind it that always appealed to me and at about what age are we speaking oh of it? very young yes uh, but at the time when your mother said you had to have a voice i yeah. was about 14 yes. again this this sort of age group yeah so then if we go back to your attendance of la boheme do you have any besides overdressing do you have any <laughs> specific um sense of uh, what what that was about well i thought it was absolutely wonderful and uh you know i think when you're destined to do something later on in life and you're you're introduced to it before you have experienced it there's already a, a connection of some sort and i did feel that i just i knew that there was something something but i couldn't tell what i had no idea i would end up being an opera singer but there was, it, it was just wonderful. Well, of course, La Boheme is a, is a wonderful piece to in, introduce anyone to, whether they go on to have a professional life or not. It's, the, it's sort of the perfect opera, dramatically, musically, everything about it. How old were you when you first started studying opera? Hmm, 17, 16, 17. So you were still in high school? or you, yes, 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 yes. And it was very much... Uh, well, a friend of a friend of ours who was uh, 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 who was a singer in the in the choir was very close to Francis, my sister Francis, and he used to come to the house and and we'd all sort of just sing or you know make music and this kind of thing. Anyway, the word got out to the choir master at school, Teresa Bro, at Finney High School, that uh, you know I, I had a voice, and I remember standing at my locker at school. And I got this tap on the on my shoulder, and I turned around, and it's Mrs. Bro, and she said, pointed a finger at me, and she said, "You're in the choir tomorrow." <laughs> and I was, I was rather nonplussed. I didn't quite know <laughs> um, who's done this. You know. <laughs> anyway, uh, she was an absolutely wonderful woman and very instrumental in uh, introducing me to my first voice teacher. And that came about because when we were in the choir, long story short, my sister became head of the sopranos and I was the head of the contralto section. Wow. Um, and then there was a, a, a Mozart piece. What was it? Um, that my sister Frances was going to sing. And she developed, I don't know, some sort of fear about it. I, it's a little... It's a little difficult to talk about Michael because it is my sister, but she um, she just couldn't do it. She was afraid. Something came over her, and so Mrs. Bro said, "Maria, I want you to learn this and sing this." And I thought, "What? Well, you know, it's a soprano part, and I don't know if I can." I sort of, well, I had, had sort of both voices, I guess. It's always it's always difficult for anyone to pin me down and say what. What is the voice? So I ended up singing this, Michael, and then Mrs. Bro 
put me into a little singing contest. And uh, my first aria, I, I chose Adieu Forêt by Tchaikovsky, if you can imagine, um, and won that. And then she introduced me to Marjorie Gordon. So that's how my first voice lessons came about. And I was about, yeah, about 17, 16, 17. And the following year, I sang Barbara Seville with the Detroit Opera. Don't wow. ask me the how, but yes. That's, that's and then helped. later, but in that period, you had two other noteworthy voice teachers. Uh, at least I've read Jenny Terrell and also mm-hmm. Eleanor Stieber. Could, could that you... came much later. Oh, is that, that later? That yes. was much later, yes. That's when I left Detroit. I left Detroit when I was 18, and I went to Cleveland. And the reason I went to Cleveland was because the summer of that particular year, James Levine was performing at the Meadowbrook School, and Mrs. Gordon, my Marjorie Gordon, my voice teacher, wanted me to audition for the part of Maddalena in Rigoletto, which he was doing with Jan Pierce and Roberta Peters and Cornell McNeil and Ezio Flagello. That sounds like a classic cast. It, it <laughs> certainly was. I mean, that's a that's a whole other era. Uh, <laughs> and um, so I, I, you know, I really didn't know Italian, but I understood the word somehow. I, does that make, no, it doesn't make any sense, but you'll see what, what I mean by that. When it came to the actual audition, and he was auditioning, Jimmy was, with Pierre Bernard, who was a, a sort of singing expert and wrote books about uh, vocal technique, etc. And just before I went in, I remember thinking, oh, gosh, I don't, I don't want to do this. I don't know. So I nearly took my name down from the list, but it was, it was too late. <laughs> and in I walked and... Jimmy looked up with the, the classic towel across the shoulder and he with his flashing blue eyes and he said, Madalena? And I said, yes, and I, I sang it. And he got very, very excited and he said, well, the, the Italian is, is awful, but it's it's wonderful, you, you know, we can work on that. And um, he was excited by my sort of interpretation of what I didn't understand but understood. Right. So that's how that started. I sang uh, Madalena, and uh, then a friend who was there at the Meadowbrook uh, School, it was a wonderful uh, summer festival, and I met some people there, and one was um, Mary Michael Earl from Oklahoma, and she uh, was already attending the uh, Cleveland Institute of Music, and she said, you know, you must come there. You must. I work with Eleanor Steber, and and you know, and so all this sort sort of just evolved in this way, and or Jenny Terrell, and so that's where it sort of started. And I went off to Cleveland and worked with uh, with well, first of all, I was driven to New York by a friend, and I had sprained my ankle. I remember being on a some sort of crutch or something. We drove; she drove me to uh, New York, <laughs> and I sang for Eleanor. And when I sang, and I sang Non Più Mesta from La Cianerentola by Rossini, uh, her mouth sort of dropped open. <laughs> just, you know, and I'm sort of, you know, just just doing what my, you know, abilities tell me to do. I had no particular, in other words, the, the focus was upon doing the job well, doing right. it well, learning something, not being famous and not all that stuff. So it was a wonderful link to the path. 
that took me from uh, Cleveland to New York, where I worked with Jenny Terrell. Um, and that was because we we went to Aspen and I met uh, Jenny Terrell and, and Aspen. So that's how all that sort of started. Now, when did did you first come to Los Angeles? Not the Los, even the Los Angeles Opera, but right. did you make any trip to Los Angeles before that time? Yes, with James Levine, and that's in the days when Ernest Fleischmann was uh, uh, running the uh, L.A. Philharmonic, um, and I, you know, Michael, I'm trying to remember what was the first piece that I did. It may very well have been. I haven't thought about this for a very long time. I think it was the Mozart C minor mass, which we did with Kathy Battle, beautiful Kathy Battle, and I think it was that. But I know I did some concerts with Jimmy. And so that would have been at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion. Yes, yes, yes that's right. That's right. Little did I know. And of of course, uh, you did Salome at the Royal Opera, a very famous production in 1992 uh, but do you remember what the discussion was or anything about how Salome arrived in LA to be in the first season? LA was the first was, Oh LA was it? Was, oh absolutely Oh yes of course it was, 1986 yes. yes that's right and it was Peter Hemmings right. it was his vision if it hadn't been for Peter Hemmings that never would have happened and I give Peter credit for that very important pivotal moment in my professional life, singing that role. Well, this is fascinating. So Salome, then, the production in 1986, was commissioned as part of the first season. Yes. Well, quite, that's quite a, you know, that's a that takes a visionary, and he was that. Peter Hemmings was that. He went with what he believed, and which, you know, I think to a lot of people were quite, uh, you know, amazed um, at the idea and... But it was something I will never ever forget, and it's the only production I ever wanted to do. I didn't. I wasn't interested in jumping into other productions of Salome. That was it. What are your memories of Peter Hemmings? Absolutely wonderful man. Very warm. Very strong in his in his uh, you know his beliefs and his opinions, and but very based on knowledge. Um, he gave us a, a tremendous amount of freedom, if you will, carte blanche, virtually. Uh, I mean, there was a great team here. There was Peter Hall, my ex-husband. There was John Barry and, and Liz, the designers. There was Liz Keane, the choreographer. It just all came together, and it was unlike anything I had done before, apart from perhaps Dialogue des Carmelites, the Metropolitan Opera, but Salome is Salome. You can't really compare anything on that scale to anything else that I had done personally. I received a phone call one day. This is how this all came about. I'd sung a concert with Claudio Barro uh, a few nights before. I think it was the uh, Albenberg's Divine or I'm not sure which. The phone rang, and it was Peter Hemmings, and he said, you know, I, I heard your concert, and he said, I hear Hot Salome in your voice. And I was sort of, I didn't, it was a little bit of a frisson, I didn't quite know what to say. However, having said that, Michael, a, a few weeks before that, some 
I don't know whether it was the Opera in Paris, but somebody called me from Paris wanting me to do it. And for some reason, I just didn't take it. It didn't have enough. I didn't. It didn't phase me like the conversation. It was as if, as if Peter's uh, invitation to do that was the one, and fate somehow knew that. I was amazed. And also another another thing that is of interest when I was a, a child again. Uh, recording that, I think my sister Frances bought was of Ingeborg oh. singing the final scene uh, with a picture. You know, those albums that had those wonderful photographs, and on, and it was there she's sort of kneeling um, to the the head of uh, John the Baptist. And I remember that image just photographically; it was, it was so strong. Um, and I listened to that piece, and uh, on the other side, it was a perfido by Beethoven, uh, of the few recordings we had, that was one of them. And little did I know that that's a part I would be singing all those years later. But it was Peter Hemmings. It was Peter. And I think he was, he was very bold. But he heard something. It wasn't, I didn't just jump and say, yes, I'll do it. I said, let me get the score. Let me take a look at this. And uh, so I did. I did that, and and uh, I remember getting to getting to the scene with with uh, with John the Baptist and and going through that. And I thought, well, if one can sing those five or six pages, I think you can do it. And I knew dramatically it was very close to very close to me. Of course, I never in my life thought I would be having a private conversation with you for posterity. Oh. But but what struck me uh, amongst many things in the production uh, was the phenomenon of your lightness. You seemed to float physically in the space. And I remember at the end when you came for your curtain call, you clearly looked like a singer who had wrenched everything out of you. So your actual gravity seemed different. And I was very struck by that of how... Um, uh, she seemed to float throughout the scene, and it seemed to be um, what Oscar Wilde had asked for, a kind of mm. diaphanous, shining mm. presence. Uh, was that just something that came through you, or did you consciously think about that? Or? Well, that's very lovely of you to say, and it's also um, not something that was preconceived or you know, planned. There is a quality to that role that... I think if you really and truly allow it and allow yourself to become it, there is a sort of transcendence that may sound heavy, but that is what it is. And that piece has that in spades. I've always said Salome was my favorite role to sing because of that. Um, it's it's a very complex character, and, I, and as I said many, many times, it is, it is the Salome scene through the eyes of Oscar Wilde, mm. and that's very important to, to understand. It's not the biblical account, you know, which is not as sexual as this is, and, uh, or as complex. In fact, Salome is not really quite the... She isn't what she is in the opera. So yes, yes you do, and and she's there the whole time, and I did not want to leave the stage. I I, I 
presumably there are moments when, or one moment, I think, that uh, the singer can leave the stage and come back. But that that would have been completely wrong. You have to just stay within this world, which is so, at one moment, quite beautiful and poetic and sensual, and the other, the absolute most aberrant, almost decayed <laughs> sense of, 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 of uh, uh, sensuality and sexual passion. I mean, it's... it's <laughs> Heavy stuff. Another thing that struck me is that uh, Yokanan actually looked like the Oscar mm. Wilde piece. I mean, I think I saw it once. It couldn't have been Seth Thomas because that's a tenor. But I mean, it was someone mm. like that with the, a giant sort of heroic. Michael Devlin. Was ep- Michael Devlin. Wasn't and he was a thin, oh. Oh. Uh, meaning he looked like Oscar Wilde describes mm. him as being the mirror of Salome. Mm. Mm. And... Um, <clears throat> Very opposite. Uh, um, yes, I, I see. Yes, I could. as opposed to a craggy sort of you know smelly prophet mm-hmm, or something. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, so Michael had this wonderfully uh, emaciated sort of look, and yet it, he was he was quite strong, but obviously you know driven to that sort of state by you know the constant effort on his part to, to change the world, to change everyone, to, to proselytize. I, I suspect it was uh, rather exhausting. You've, you've mentioned some of the other collaborators, but is, is there mm-hmm. anything you'd like to tell me about the rehearsal process or anything oh, that you remember that yes. we should record? Yes, I think Peter, Peter Hall, was just superb. And you know, at first, Peter was not sure about doing it. And I said, Peter, this look at this again, think of this again. And he didn't, of course, he thought, yeah, absolutely, I must do it. What, do you remember what his apprehensions I don't, were? I, you know, I don't recall. I don't think he knew it as well. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just as simple as that. He just wasn't as familiar with it as an opera, perhaps a story. Perhaps he thought it was more the biblical story. So I don't think he had seen it. I, I don't recall him saying that he had. Um, he may have, but... Whatever that may be, he certainly, upon uh, you know looking at it again, uh, decided unequivocally, yes, this is this is something to do, and he was absolutely right for it. And we, with the first rehearsals, Peter had us all reading the text. The meaning the opera libretto yes, or the re- actual re- wild the the, the, the libretto. The libretto. Me. Yes, yes, and that because of Peter approaches as being a theater director. And really, uh, that theater director, uh, the other directors of his, the other one I worked with, who who was uh, of the same world, both English, both of the of that school in Britain, was John Dexter at the Met. Yes. And and so the so that was absolutely wonderful, and I remember everyone really identifying with their individual parts in a much more intense way. Than just coming and singing it in the in the in the German, but having a sort of vague idea, perhaps, in some instances of what it all means. When you stop and you read the text through, and that is the that is you, you're becoming it. It's becoming you. There's a whole different there's a whole different dynamic occurs, and that was wonderful. There was an electricity, and I do remember saying this, and I hope this doesn't sound too arrogant. I don't mean for it to sound arrogant, 
that I just said, I, I pointed my finger in the palm of my hand, and I said, Peter, we have this peace right here. I know it. I feel it. I know. I understand this. It just was annoying, annoyingness. Uh, well, it certainly is memorable for that reason. Everything seemed to come together in a way that seemed destined to come together. And, of course, that actually doesn't happen that frequently. <laughs> no. So No, it doesn't. And so for those of us who live in Los Angeles, it is a very memorable production. Well, thank you, Michael. And for me, for my life, absolutely. And Liz Keene, the, the, the dance, Liz, oh, she was absolutely wonderful. She came to my house, our house in, in East Sussex. <laughs> I'll never forget it. And I had a very large uh, drawing room there. It was about 30 feet long, so there was plenty of room to move the furniture back. And uh, Liz, uh, you know, demonstrated some of her ideas. And I said, you know, Liz, I said, it's, <laughs> I don't know whether, I don't want this. I, I said, it's, it, that is beautiful. I said, that's beautiful. But I think it's a little bit more about, discovering herself shall we say and she went oh ah okay and brilliant she is brilliant she immediately that it, it, it understood what i meant by that and what she came up with with was just i thought fantastic you know with the veils and all of it and that's that's Liz. she's brilliant she's brilliant at all sort of all sorts of movement peter used her a lot at the national theater she could do sword fighting for anything you know she was fantastic so it was an amazing team of people and we all got on so well there was just this wonderful energy henry lewis was a complex a character i must say your conductor yes um we had a few moments but i'll, I'll explain do you want me to go yes into please that? if you wish to yes that'd be very he interesting came, when i when i first you know, was going to now sing it and and work through it with with a coach. But I always learn everything alone. I never have anyone teach me the music. I will make mistakes in the process, and then they can correct those mistakes. But I will make those mistakes on my own first. And so Henry was in in England, and we went to Glyndebourne. We were we were allowed to use the green room there uh, because of the acoustic was a, a little bit better and. Uh, so we went, uh, and I sang through it with Henry, and he was absolutely wonderful. He's a vocal coach, brilliant, brilliant. And he said, "You know, Maria, this this approach those notes in this way. You've not sung a part like this before. This is this is a, a different thing." And he was very helpful. Um, I, I think having been married to the wonderful Marilyn Horn would have hurt for his uh, knowing about about singers and technique and all that sort of thing. And he had wonderful ideas about it. But Henry was a very uh, an ultra sensitive man, aren't we all? I was quite feisty in those days, <laughs> for sure. And singing a part like that certainly put me on edge. It wasn't easy to live with during that time, I can assure you. So when we came to rehearsing, Henry was, well, there was some moment in which I, I just thought, what is the matter with him? He said, I don't know, he just, perhaps a moment of insecurity, because we all go through this. And it's all down to that. It's not, it's not for any other reason. And anyway, something stopped in the rehearsal, and um, then 
later on, Henry came into my dressing room and and I said, you know, Henry, <laughs> you are brilliant. You know, don't don't be your own worst enemy. And he just sort of tamed down. I needed that said to myself. It was <laughs> 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 one to another. Um, but he he was a very talented man. I do think that Henry was talented uh, and. I thought he was right for the part, for the, the as conductor. So I'm trying. I'm just trying to. I mean, some of these images are coming back. I'm going yeah. to the back to the dance mm. for a minute because, of course, it was sensational. Was there any issue with the L.A. Opera of uh, the dance of the Seven Veils, or did Peter Hemming say go for it, or meaning the fact that it was mm. uh, complete nudity at the mm-hmm. the end, or the all seven veils were removed? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. No, Peter had no no uh, qualms about that at all. I think he realized that it was uh, an important part of the, of the dance. It wasn't meant for some sort of uh, you know effect and cheap effect, right? As a shock value thing. Um, I mean, taking your clothes off in front of the public isn't isn't the easiest thing to do. But when you're in the moment, you're not thinking of that at all. I wasn't at all in, inhibited in those moments to 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 do that, and it was it was much more telling of what of what she's experiencing in that. It's a, almost a, where it, trying to identify with something and not knowing what, and it so there's a there's a kind of purity in it, and that's what I think. Um, because it's true to the piece. Yes, and there, it's the, it, because it's frustration. It's utter frustration at the end of the of the dance. You know, it in, it starts out as something to to uh, you know to get Herod on her side, so to speak. But as it evolves, she goes into a, a world that has nothing to do with what who's there watching or or any of that. It's a self it's a self expression, and I think that's that was achieved in that dance through because of Liz understanding of it. What was the climate like at the LA Opera? I mean, it was a new company, so you were entering into a group, a technical staff, a, an administration that was all new. Do you have any memories of that, what it was like to arrive in Los Angeles and to you begin know, working? You know, Michael, I, I don't think I realized that it was all new from that point of view. I, I don't think I did. All I, I, what, I, what I remember is how wonderful everyone was. It was there... Chip was his name. Chip, who was he came to collect me at the airport. Oh, he was, interesting. Oh, Everything, everyone was just wonderful. Well, you know, they you, they still do the L.A. Opera. Mr. and Mrs. Hemmings created mm-hmm. a support group of local people mm-hmm. who still greet the artists at the airport, who mm-hmm. bring them to their homes mm-hmm. and give them meals, and if they mm-hmm. wish, mm-hmm. Uh, because mm-hmm. they felt that L.A. was a bit of a at that time. You know, a foreign mm-hmm. outpost. Uh, it's now. <laughs> we're yeah. told if you read the paper in Berlin, we're one of mm-hmm. the hippest cities in the world. But, mm-hmm. but I think they felt at the time it was still a long way for some singers to come. Yes, that's right. That's right. That's what I always heard. I can. I sort of understand that in a way, but I wasn't thinking about that. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting that you didn't really have any. No, sense. I. I don't. I don't recall. I, I I know that this production was very significant for Peter and for the, for the opera company to 
be taken more seriously. Yes. Um, I recall that because I was told that. Um, and I'm delighted that it was for Peter. And I think he took great pride in that. It meant a lot. That production meant a lot to Peter Hemmings. As a matter of fact, it was the last thing that um, I was I was shocked to hear that he was unwell. But he wanted me to do the production of the Savolina Festival in Finland. He loved this particular festival. And that production was taken there. Peter was too... He was unwell, and he couldn't attend it. Mm. So he was very delighted, I think, when he heard that it had sold well and all that kind of thing, that it continued to have that, the significance that he, that was his initial vision. But everyone, going back to your, your initial uh, question about uh, the company, I just remember it being absolutely wonderful, everyone there. And my dresser, Lynn Mann, was... <laughs> I cannot say enough about Lynn Mann. And interestingly enough, my daughter has worked with Lynn since. Rebecca's an actress now. And Lynn was, she, she'd done a lot of theater and work as a, as a dresser. And, but for her to do this was, and Peter knew how after the the initial production how important she was and she went everywhere that we did the production it was lynn um she'd have my dressing room all you know with wonderful organic bits of food energy foods and things all beautifully laid out and at the end of the of the opera she'd have the shower running and i go straight into that shower lynn was she was just Brilliant! I never, never had an, a, a dresser like that in my life. And did your daughter work with her on a film or another yes, stage? Yes, she did. I, or was it? I think it was a theater. But it was just so remarkable that all those years later, Lynn, you know, said she would do that with Rebecca. So there was just everything. Everything about it was wonderful. The um, next piece you did was Cosi. Is that a production that Peter Hall, is that based on the production he had done at Glyndebourne? Or was it a new production? You know, Michael, I... That was his production, was only being his production. Because I remember seeing a production at at Glyndebourne of Cozy in perhaps 1978 or something. Oh my goodness, yes, that's when I met Peter, yes. And I thought it was his production. Yes, yes. You know, that's true. Oh yes, I mean it was quite a year. That's so let's mm-hmm. let's speak of Tosca because that was with Placido mm-hmm. Domingo. Oh yeah. And let me ask before we speak mm-hmm. of Domingo as a singer in that context, mm-hmm. was he, what? Do you have any rem- a memory of him being around at the beginning of the op- opera during the Salome period? Did he attend at all, or do you remember? I don't recall, but I was told that he. That he was talking about this on a talk show or something in very in very favorable terms, mm. and I don't re- I don't recall Michael that he was there. He may very well have been. He may have been because why? How else could he talk about it in the way that I heard that he did? <laughs> yes. And he himself told me so. So mm. so it's interesting. Um, I'm looking back. Um, so in in 1989. Mm. You performed in Tosca, mm. and he conducted. 
Mm-hmm. He was your conductor. Mm-hmm. But before that, I believe he also, because you, you sang twice, you sang Tosca. He also um, sang. Uh, no, he sang it the first time. He, he sang, sang it, it the first time. Yes, definitely, definitely. In 1990, well, I have, I have 1992, mm-hmm. where I, I have him definitely singing here. But the, in mm-hmm. 1989, I have him conducting. I mean, I'm looking at the programs, I, but no, I, I, I believe it's the other way way around. I, because Placido came to my house in Sussex and went through the the opera with me, um, which was wonderful. And but we sang it together. It wasn't. Was How interesting! Sang it. So, so yeah. what are your memories of him, both as a uh, singer and as a conductor? Oh, he's just marvelous. He's absolutely marvelous. I loved singing that with him, for obvious reasons. I mean, he's, you know, he's Placido was, is a romantic. You know, he he just it's throughout his nature, everything is intensely romantic. On top of which, he is a marvelous uh, musician and singer. And there was such a wonderful rapport that we had. It was it was believable with Placido. It was, it was believable. <laughs> and uh, that was another, Justino Diaz was fantastic, I thought. Absolutely fantastic as Escarpia. As and as a conductor, wonderfully simpatico, obviously. He, he understands what singers are going through. And and he's very, very musical. He knows what he's doing. You know, it's interesting, speaking of Tosca after Salome, because one thing that has been dis- Distinctive uh, of your your career is that you've had a, a wide repertoire, and I wonder if you could comment on that. I mean, you have sung things that some singers would not have sung. To you, you know what I'm saying? They would yes. not have sung Tosca and um, right. Salome, for example. And Carmen. Yes. You know, I, yes. And that's and true that's... even with what you've sung for the LA Opera, which uh, which mm-hmm. I see as Salome, Cosi, uh, Tosca, Madama Butterfly, and mm-hmm. Fedora. Mm-hmm. It's an mm-hmm. interesting combination. Yes, <laughs> quite. Well, as I said earlier in the conversation, Michael, I think there is always a sort of uh, a look of wonder as to, well, what voice are you? And even James Levine thought that. I think there was one point he thought, you know, you could sing Aida. Um, it was just and Jenny Terrell, a classic. Was <laughs> Jenny Terrell's response when I sang for her in, in Aspen? That's where I met her, and um, when a group of us, we were all part of this sort of group of James Levine's friends and musicians, and and uh, I was the only singer in that group, and we and I had the great uh, uh, gift of going to to Aspen uh, to hear Jimmy's concerts and. And he bought me all these wonderful opera scores, and and I met Jenny Terrell. And when I sang for Jenny, um, she said she looked and she said, "Are you sure you are a maid? So I don't <laughs> hear it." <laughs> and so she wanted me to sing, <laughs> to learn "Mi Chiama No Mimi," which I did. It was just this sort of, you know. And and it and and that's what it ended up being a, a little of this, a little of that. In terms of things that felt right to you. That felt right. Voice. Yes, yes, yes. That's also true in the song repertoire. 
Do you have specific memories of some of these other productions, such as Madama Butterfly or the Fedora? Mm. Mm, yes, yes. Peter was very uh, Peter Hemmings was absolutely passionate about my singing Butterfly. He wanted me to sing Butterfly, and I thought, oh wow, yes. And I'm glad he asked me to do it. I'm glad he. I loved singing that role. It's absolutely beautiful part. Uh, and Ian Judge was the director. He had directed um, Tosca. And I'm noticing that Mr. Domingo actually had one performance with you. Yes, that's right. And then he conducted. And then Jorge Pita had, uh, he had five performances. Mm -hmm. Was it Neil Shikoff, one of the, I think, Neil? Yes, he was in Tosca. Neil Shikoff. Yes, that's that's right. Yes. 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 So I have a I have a for Madama Butterfly, as I said, one performance of of Domingo, and then the Pita he did uh, he did five. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, Suzuki with Stephanie Vlahos. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. And so, um, what 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 can you tell us about that Madama Butterfly, and why was Peter Hemmings, uh, why was he? Pushing you to do that, to do the butterfly. He just, he believed I could do it. He also wanted me to do Rondine, which I did not do. But he he was absolutely convinced that that was a part I should do. Mm-hmm. Again, one of those parts that I'm sure some eyebrows were raised. But I, I, I loved doing it. That I recall. I, I loved singing it. Again, it's sort of... The reason why I'm sort of hesitant in in answering that is because, and this has nothing to do with the production or that side of it, um, but it was, again, not an easy time personally. Mm. But I loved being there and doing the production, and I felt happy about that. So what would you say your sense is about Los Angeles, meaning the Los Angeles Opera, as a totality, because you had five different productions with revivals of those productions here in our city. So we feel very fortunate that that period in your life was invested in performing here. But do you have any general comment you might want to make about Los Angeles? Well, Los Angeles really holds a very special place in my heart. Um, Not only because of what that role did, what Singing Salome for the first uh, time it did, but every every everyone involved in the productions, that feeling of almost a family, and a singer needs that. You need that feeling of support, a feeling that you are of the same mind with the directors, the conductors, the designers, um, the impresario vows. So that it wipes away any unnecessary uh, conflicts that get in the way of, of things artistic. And I remember that very strongly. And, and to be able to do those parts there for the first time was extremely significant. So... When you went on to the Royal Opera in 1992 mm. to do the Salome, was that mm. that it was based on the Los Angeles production? Only the only production I've ever done. I wouldn't do any other production. Mm. I was asked, 
but uh, no. So it was brought there, it was brought to San Francisco, uh, it was brought to the Kennedy Center. They got quite quite a, a run, actually. And I think we're fortunate that that's recorded. Mm. So. Mm, at at, uh, at Covent Garden, the Covent yes, Garden. Yes, the, and there's a yeah. DVD of it, which is mm-hmm. very exciting. Right. I, I haven't seen it. I've never watched. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting. So you you do, no. you have not watched. That's no. always a question they ask in no. Hollywood. Do you ever watch your? Own? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, yeah. I've, I've seen like little tiny little bits, little one. You know, when a, yes. a friend says, "You must watch," and I'll go, "No." No, you're you're in a different mindset, and I and I you see it much more critically. Uh, you're not there in the moment, which is all that matters. It's not it's not your reaction after. I think the memory of it, knowing that I did that, warms my heart very much. I do realize it is quite an accomplishment. I do realize that, and I say that humbly, and with gratitude, for having had that experience. The um, Arm and Hammer Museum has a, a, a spectacular painting by Gustav Moreau of Salome, mm-hmm. and uh, I think with the head of John the Baptist, I can't remember, it's called Salome's Last Dance or something, but mm-hmm. they had a year-long um, series of smaller shows uh, all related to that painting. And I went to a lecture and uh, indeed saw your last last scene from that. I hadn't seen it in years, but it was very exciting to see because they they showed that as part of the lecture of the many different um, sort of interpretations of uh, Salome. So it was exciting to see again. And I must tell you, it does it does hold up and it remains thrilling. So Thank you very much. <laughs> that that Thank might you. that may not get you to watch it, but <laughs> <laughs> at least you, you should feel happy that there's that document. <laughs> I think you've given us some very wonderful things to to think about. And talking about your dresser uh, is especially. Um, moving and helpful because I think part of what we've tried to do with this archive project is to interview all sorts of different kinds of people from mm-hmm. the people in the box office to the mm-hmm. the wig mm-hmm. makers to mm. to uh, people on the board who Absolutely. gave the money so so uh, to to chorus members we've really reached out in many different directions well, that's marvelous and uh, we also have uh, we've also interviewed um, I think about. 20 people or 25 oh. people who were um, uh, who were celebrating the 25th anniversary, and uh, it, it's interesting. Right? So we have patrons as well, just including a husband and wife who met each other at Funchula Del West, <laughs> 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 sitting next to each other. Can you oh, imagine? Wow. They, they in two single seats. Isn't that something? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what so. it's about. You, everyone, it's it's a, it's a team. It's a team yes. effort, and you know. You can't do it without everyone else. Well, we're That's very we're idea. very grateful that you spoke to us today, and thank you very much, Maria Ewing. It's a great pleasure to speak with you. Oh, thank you, Michael. All right, say hello to Detroit, and, <laughs> <laughs> and thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on Apple iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Remember to share with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera.